0: Welcome to Finance Lab, a podcast for the intellectual investor, powered by Dalbar, an independent financial research firm dedicated to improving the investor experience. Finance Lab is where real investors get practical insight and perspective from real experts. In each episode, we'll dive deep into the fascinating world of finance, exploring topics like investing, financial planning, market trends, and everything in between. We're here to empower you with the tools and knowledge necessary to make informed financial decisions. Hello and welcome to Finance Lab. I'm your host, Corey Clark, Chief Marketing Officer at Talbar. In today's episode, we're going to discuss how to invest when you can't predict the future. And embedded in that title is a presumption that investors cannot predict the future. And if you don't agree with that premise, we're here to tell you that you should, or maybe more aptly put that it's in your best interest to understand and accept the fact that you cannot predict the future of the markets. Now, from a behavioral standpoint, investors tend to be overconfident in their own abilities. And this isn't just a finance thing. Uh, It's a behavioral heuristic that extends to all parts of our lives that we tend to overestimate ourselves. And I'm sure there are many investors out there that believe with the proper research and perspective and their intellect, that they'll see things that the average investor does not see and that they can beat the market. Uh, But we're here to tell you that that's simply not true. And in fact, holding that belief can be very harmful to investors and their goals. So part of this episode is to dispel that belief that we can predict the future of the markets. But more importantly, if we accept the fact that we cannot predict the future, how do we go about investing? As our guest today will tell you, not being able to predict the future does not mean that investing is a crapshoot or that you're at the complete mercy of chance. There are ways to successfully invest without being able to see the future. And with us today to walk through this is Artie Green. Artie is a certified financial planner professional and founder of Cognizant Wealth Advisors. He's a recognized expert in financial planning and has been quoted in numerous print and online media, such as the Wall Street Journal, Kiplinger's, Forbes, Bloomberg, and Money. He has served on two nonprofit boards and currently on the Los Altos Community Foundation Committee Investment Committee. Artie, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Corey.
0: So why don't we start from the top and the premise that I mentioned, which is that investors cannot predict the future. Uh, Dalbar has been doing a study for a long time uh, where the main premise or the main point of that study is that investors should not try to time the market. So from your perspective, is is timing the market something that investors should expect uh, that that they can do successfully and, and why or why not?
1: Yeah, well, in my experience, the answer is no. And if you think logically about it, I think it's, it can be explained fairly easily why it doesn't work. So let's suppose that you own some stocks and you're um, worried that the market is going to be dropping at some point in the future. In order for you to be able to effectively time that market drop, First, you have to be able to see some sort of signal or trigger that tells you it's going to drop. And then you have to be able to act on that. If you act too soon, the market will continue to go up and you'll miss out on those gains. And if you wait too long before everybody else recognizes that and starts selling out, then of course, by the time you get to sell out, you will have lost a significant amount because you will have been doing it while the market was dropping. And as we know, when markets drop, they drop fast. But even that, even that isn't enough because now you're out of the market. You're no longer invested. And now you have to figure out when to get back in. And that entire sequence of decision-making has to occur in reverse, um, you have to see some signal that tells you when the market has reached bottom. And then if you act too soon, the market may fall another 5 10% and you'll lose money. If you wait too long before getting back into the market, you will miss out on the gains that take place off of that market bottom. And just like when markets drop, they drop quickly, When markets rise from their bottoms, they also rise quickly. And so those are four things that you have to be able to do in order to effectively time simply one market turn. And of course, the markets are going up and down all the time. And so being able to do this consistently is not only difficult just from a logical standpoint but uh, certainly i've never seen anyone who's been able to do that consistently right
0: so you say you have to go four for four because if if you miss time any of those four triggers or four points that you just discussed that that's essentially going to destroy the whole plan
1: correct exactly and that's just for one market cycle people do guess right on a market drop, you know, we have lots of, um, we have lots of uh, market, I call them pundits who, who, you know, predict a market drop and successfully guessed it, if you will, or a market turnaround, but never consistently. Usually it's a matter of luck that they happen to guess right.
0: So I'm going to play devil's advocate here because uh, I I know that this is what has come up to me in similar conversations with, with friends and family uh, is that, okay, I, I agree, they'll, they'll agree I can't time the market, but I'm not looking to time the overall market. I'm looking at individual issues, individual companies, and I'm going to be able to pick those stocks based on their profitability. Is that an alternative where uh, investors may be able to see the future, or is, is that also um, a dangerous approach?
1: Well, picking stocks is also the other way that many people believe that they can actually beat the market. Um, And I know lots of people who do their own market research in individual companies. And based on that research, they believe that company A will perform better than company B over the next year, the next several years, whatever. And so they will actually pick individual stocks rather than... Uh, investing in the market at large. And can they do that? Well, there's two reasons why I don't think they can. First of all, it's extremely difficult for a company's CEO to predict his own or her own company's earnings. JP Morgan did a study about five, six years ago, and they determined that there are a number of what they call exogenous factors that are outside the control of even the CEO of a company that in many cases cannot even be predicted. For example, the commodities or raw materials that the company has to use to make its products or services. Maybe something happens to those. Prices go up, prices go down, and uh, there were unexpected changes that impacted them. There might be... um, Government action, new regulations, or even new deregulations that could impact the company's performance. Um, maybe foreign competitors enter the market, and they're subsidized by their government so they can offer similar products less expensively. Or perhaps a competitor to the company comes up with some technological innovation that enables them to be able to become the stronger competitor. Um, even shifts in buying power to the firm's customers. If, for example, the market should change, there are more or less competitors in the market. These are all factors that the CEO has no control over. Now, why is this important? Well, we know that one of the most important factors in terms of stock prices is company earnings. And so if company earnings go up, then logically the stock price will go up. I won't even say logically because we see this all the time in the markets. When company performance, as measured by earnings, does not do well, then stock prices tend to drop. These activities, these these factors outside of a CEO's control make it difficult for the CEO to predict what its stock price will be. So how can an individual who's doing their own research, picking individual stocks, Possibly be able to know that if it's hard for the company's CEO to do it
0: what about groups of stocks or or asset classes so um, I guess what i'm getting is an in investor sentiment like it, there are times where um, maybe there there is a a hot investor uh, sector for example, uh, and that there's a high demand for those securities is that Is that a way that investors may be able to predict? how groups of securities might move based on investor sentiment?
1: It's a good question. So there are really, if you think about it, only two factors that drive stock prices. We just talked about one, company earnings, and how difficult it is to predict what company earnings will be in the future, which means it's extremely difficult using that factor to predict what stock prices will be. There is a second factor, and you touched on it in your question, and that is what's called investor sentiment. Uh, Most people have probably heard of the term price-earnings ratio or PE ratio. What that really means is the price that an investor is willing to pay for a certain amount of company earnings. So, for example, if a P.E. ratio, a current P.E. ratio of a stock is 15, that means that investors are willing to pay 15 times the price, the value of earnings as measured by a single share of stock. In other words, that one share of stock represents a certain uh, piece of earnings, and investors are willing to pay up to 15 times that on the expectation that the company earnings and performance will continue to do well, and so that stock price will continue to grow, okay? That's investor sentiment, and the problem with investor sentiment is that it is based upon the collective beliefs of millions of investors at any point in time, and it can change at any point in time. Let's suppose, for example, that that stock that had a, a PE ratio of 15 today, a year from now, has a PE ratio of only seven and a half, half of what it was today. Even if company earnings remained consistent throughout that entire period of time, the price of that stock, by definition, would drop in half simply because investors no longer are willing to pay as much for that individual share of stock as they were a year ago. Now, let's put these two together. If it's hard enough to try to predict company earnings in order to predict how well the company's stock will do in the future, I contend that it's virtually impossible to predict investor sentiment Investor sentiment can be driven by all sorts of things that even have nothing to do with the stock market, Uh, politics, um, wars taking place in various parts of the world. Um, Investor sentiment changes all the time, and so trying to predict the price of a stock, in my view, is, when you consider these two factors, virtually impossible.
0: And so a- as an investor, if if I accept the fact that I'm not going to be able to time the ebb and flow of the broader market, if I accept the fact that I can do as much research as I want to do, and I can certainly get a lot of great information and, and, and try to select stocks intelligently, but there's so many factors that I, I'm just not going to be able to predict or control, how does an investor go about investing if if there's no way that they can predict the way that the market will go?
1: Boy, that's the $64 million question, isn't it? (laughs) And actually, there are three things that you can control with investing, okay? The first, in no particular order, is cost. Any investment that you make, in fact, doesn't even have to be an investment in stocks. It can be investment in anything. You can buy land, whatever. But any investment that you make has a cost associated with it. And that cost reduces the amount of return that you can make on that investment. If we look at two stocks, for example, and one stock, the cost of purchasing that stock is higher than the cost of purchasing the second stock. And both stocks are expected to perform pretty much the same way. For example, such as what you said earlier about both stocks being in the same sector or something like that. Um, then if you buy the lower cost stock, you are more than likely to get the better return simply because you've reduced the cost.
0: Sort of like a foot race where somebody has a head start. (laughs) Sort
1: of like, yes, exactly. So cost, you always want to be sensitive about cost. The more you spend to buy something, uh, the lower the return will be. Now, the second area is also very important, and that is taxation
0: when it comes to taxation, is, is the goal to try to eliminate tax? Can we, can we eliminate the taxes that we, that we pay?
1: I wish we could. Unfortunately, no. We pay taxes, as you well know, on just about everything. But different investments are, have different levels of what we call tax efficiency. For example, let's take two stocks, one stock which generates Uh, distributes a quarterly dividend and another stock that has no dividends at all okay the quarterly dividend stock is what we call less tax-efficient because every time the dividends are distributed they will be taxed okay whereas the other stock that doesn't distribute dividends all of its growth is based on capital gains and so The nice thing is that we actually have uh, investment vehicles, investment accounts that have different levels of tax efficiency that we can use to kind of manage the taxation uh, across these different types of investments. We have brokerage accounts, which we can use to uh, invest in things that, uh, for example, are what what we could say are... more tax efficient. For example, if I have a brokerage account and I want to buy that stock that doesn't have any dividends uh, and I buy that stock in my brokerage account, as long as I don't sell it, I don't have to pay any taxes on it. On the other hand, we have retirement accounts. We have individual retirement accounts, also called IRAs. We have Roth individual retirement accounts, also known as Roths, and both of those accounts are either tax deferred or tax free. And so if I want to buy that stock that generates dividends, and I put that stock in my brokerage account, I'm going to be paying taxes on it every year that it distributes the dividends. But if I put that stock in one of my retirement accounts, I won't have to pay any taxes on it until I retire, or if it's a Roth, ever this is this is where we can save taxes not eliminate them by being very sensitive to the tax efficiency of different investments and where we locate them
0: that makes sense so you you're trying to match the 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 tax characteristics of the of the actual asset with the tax characteristics of the account in which it's held If that is done if that's done in an optimal way you can you can minimize the taxes but ah shucks we can't eliminate it all together you rained on my parade already that's what i was (laughs) i had a feeling that was the answer um sorry so (laughs) so you mentioned that there were three things that we can control you mentioned cost we just talked about taxation what's the third factor that we can control
1: the third factor, and in my view, is actually the most important factor, and that's the risk of our investments.
0: So obviously we want less risk. Can we, similar to my question with taxes, is there a way that we eliminate risk altogether or do we, want, do we even want to eliminate risk altogether?
1: Well, um, we can't. So let's talk about why we can't first. Um, why, why, do we, why do we even invest in investments that uh, are risky, that could lose money or uh, grow? Uh, the problem is simply that most of us don't have the ability to save enough over our working lives in order to support us over a retirement that, these days with, you know, improved health care could last 25, 30, even 35 years without working. Think about how much you have to be able to save in order to enjoy your retirement years, all the spending you want to do, the travel, whatever you like to do. Plus, of course, the increasing health care costs as you get older. Um, So we don't have the ability while we're saving during our working years, nor while we're retired when we're no longer earning income, to be able to sit on those investments and put them in relatively risk-free types of investments. We know that You know, U.S. treasuries tend to be risk-free. Most bank CDs are pretty much risk-free, except for the fact that you could lose some interest if you want to be able to sell them prematurely. Um, But the unfortunate fact is that that's generally not enough growth in your savings to be able to support that relatively long retirement lifestyle. And as if that wasn't bad enough, The biggest risk to running out of savings in retirement is inflation. And if we were having this discussion in, you know, five, six years ago, uh, most people wouldn't even have thought of inflation as a problem for the last decade or so. You know, the inflation rate was as low as it's ever been in history. Very, very low. So people didn't even think about it. And then, of course, after the pandemic... We had massive government stimulus to try to get the economy going again, which drove up demand. At the same time, we had all kinds of supply chain issues, as everyone knows about, which limited availability of supply. And in basic economics, when you have increased demand and limited supply, it drives prices up. And so we had massive inflation take place, you know, after the pandemic in 2022 and starting in 2021. These periods of inflation will come and go over people's lifetimes, and particularly it can be devastating if a a high level of inflation occurs during your retirement years. So why do we take risk in our investments? We have to be able to not only grow our investments, but to grow them above inflation to make sure that we don't lose our purchasing power, and we have enough to last us for our relatively long lifetimes.
0: So the growth of that purchasing power is really the spread in between what inflation is and what your uh, rate of return is. That, that, that's really how much your purchasing power is increasing over that time.
1: Yes, very good way to put that.
0: That wraps up part one of our discussion with Artie Green from Cognizant Wealth Advisors. Please join us for part two next Friday, where we'll discuss fixed income, interest rates and the Fed. Thanks for listening. If you found this conversation valuable, please visit financelab.dalbar.com to connect with today's guest. We'll see you on our next episode of Finance Lab.